You can grab your Bibles and turn to John chapter 4. If you've been here very long, you're probably thinking, John chapter 4, we, we've already covered that like a long time ago when we, when we, did, we went through the Gospel of John, but we're going to return there here in a few minutes. But we are in this series called Ology. You see that up on the screen, and, uh, and the word ology means a study of, and we're looking at a study of the basic Christian beliefs. Uh, we have covered bibliology, what's, what about the Bible, anthropology, who is man, soteriology last week, what is salvation, uh, this week doxology, how do I worship, next week doxology two, how do we worship, the word doxa is the word that means praise, all right, so that's where we, we get this word worship, um, an idea of worship from, ecclesiology, what is a church, and then eschatology, what about the end. Uh, so this week I'll be focusing on doxology, how do I worship. Next week we're going to have a special guest with us, a friend of mine named Kevin Singleton, who I met in 1986, and he's a super gifted uh, guy. Here's a picture of Kevin, and uh, he'll be here next week not only to lead in music, um, he'll be working with our music team, uh, I think on Saturdays at some point, or maybe Friday, uh, Jared's working that out, and working with our music team, and uh, to help lead a mu- music, but he's also going to be preaching next week. And when Kevin, we're going to have, it's a distinct privilege to have him here. When he speaks at conferences, guess what he speaks on? Our topic that, that we just happened to be on next week, and he's going to be here. That's not a coincidence, it's a God incidence. It's huge that he'll be here and speaks all over the country, actually the world, um, on this topic of corporate worship. How do we worship? And it's so excited to have Kevin with us next week. Uh, he's also going to be praying. He's going to be in, in, in three of our schools next week, our public schools speaking. Um, he'll also be uh, uh, doing um, uh, an upward basketball rally uh, on uh, Saturday afternoon for about, with parents and everything, probably over 1,000 people. Um, uh, and then on Monday, he's meeting, meeting with our assistant superintendent to talk about a character um, curriculum that, that he has actually been a part of implementing in the public school systems in New York that are all biblically based. Um, just amazing. So be praying for that whole time when Kevin is here. And I know my family and I are looking forward to having him in our home and just some great fellowship. So Kevin will be here and continue our series in the providence of God that he would be here on that particular time. So, uh, But my hope for this series and our hope for this series has been is that uh, the importance of us laying a good foundation And many of you maybe have laid a good foundation. And maybe some of you haven't. No no matter how long you've been walking with the Lord, the foundation is critical. So all of us can build on our foundation. Maybe we again have some cracks in our foundation, need a little um, uh, attention. Um, And maybe you look and your foundation is crumbling because it wasn't laid up on the Scripture in some of these key areas of a Christian. So we want to make sure that we're looking at our foundation. And before we dive into our topic from God's Word this morning, let's go to the Lord and and pray. Lord, again, we come to you and we ask that you do what only you can do, and that is to take your living and active Word that is sharper than any double-edged sword that's able to divide the soul and spirit and reach the deepest recesses of who we are, Lord, and bring about change where we need change. Lord, we all need change. We all need to be made more like Jesus. And Lord, in this area of worship, how do I worship? Uh, Lord, help us understand what your word has to say about this. And not just understand it, but to put it into practice. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, how important is worship? How important is that? Well, we we learned um, a few weeks ago in our our study of man, um, why 
God created us or what the purpose for which he created us was. And we found that in Isaiah 43, 7. Everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made, that he created us for his glory, that we make much, make much of God. We might magnify him, bring light to him, and, and, and point others to his majesty and splendor. That that's why God, that's the purpose for which we were created, is to, to bring him glory. And, and another way to say this is God created us to worship him. He created us to be worshipers. And John Piper says that the reason that uh, um, uh, worship or evangelism exists is to make worshipers. We, we want to see people come into a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ so that they be also become worshipers of our great God. Uh, therefore, it's important that we have a biblical and therefore correct understanding of worship. Not just, is it important to worship? Well, of course it is. We'd all agree with that. But we also need to have a biblical understanding of what worship is. And I like how Al Mohler um, points this emphasize this truth when he writes, nothing is more important than our understanding of worship. For our concept of worship is inescapably tied to our understanding of God and his sovereign authority to reveal the worship he desires, deserves, and demands. It's important that we have this proper understanding because we're worshiping the God of the universe. And so we want to make sure that we're doing it in a way that honors him and, and what is worship all about. So let me ask you a few questions here. Are you a worshiper of God? Are you a worshiper of God? Another question. What does it mean to worship? Another question. What comes to your mind when you think of worship? Just think about that. When you think about the word worship, and you think about worship, what comes to your mind? What's the first thing that comes to your mind? Well, many of you may be thinking of some of the things we did this morning, right? We, we've sung. Oh, that's worship. Yeah, that's worship. Uh, how about uh, praying together? We say, well, that, that's worship. That's something that maybe came to your mind. How about the preaching of God's word? That's worship as well. In fact, Martin Luther said the highest form of worship is the preaching of the word of God. Now, he was a preacher, right? So he, that's why he said that. But there, there's the aspect that we worship through the preaching of the word of God and the hearing of the word of God and the reading of the word of God. And those are probably some of the things that came to your mind. But how many of you all, when I said, what comes to your mind when you think about the word worship, thought about your workplace? How many of you all thought about fishing? How many of you all, when you thought about the word worship, you thought about school? Or, or maybe gardening? Or eating? Or cleaning up a mess of Cheerios on the floor? For the third time that morning. How many of you all thought about those kind of things when you thought about the word worship? Well, the, the truth is that those things I mentioned and many other can also be acts of worship. Just as much as singing and praying and, heaven forbid, preaching. All those things can be just as much worship. Well, with that in mind, let's turn to God's Word. And instead of looking at one particular passage of Scripture, as we normally do when we're working through books of the Bible, and just so you know, in a few weeks we'll be starting the book of Philippians and teach through the book of Philippians, but we've got a few more weeks here in this series. But instead of looking at just one passage, we're going to look at a few passages to look at God's heart for worship. And before we look at uh, 
into this topic of worship, let me give you just a general definition of worship that will be fleshed out uh, as we look into God's Word here this morning. And there's a lot of definitions, and I found, you know, definition over here, and yeah, that's that's worse, that's kind of summarizes worship, and this one over here summarizes worship, and there's like three or four different ones, and I liked all of them, but I couldn't put them all up there, and I I found one that kind of combined all three of the ones that I like the best. And here, here's, here's uh, actually what John MacArthur said, and it seemed like, he, I don't know if he was reading somebody else's thing, and he put all three of the things together, but it almost went in order. So I like this. Worship is our in, innermost being responding with praise for all that God is through our attitudes, actions, thoughts, and words based on the truth of God as he has revealed himself. That's a, that's a good definition of worship. Well, I want you to join me now and look at God's Word here. And we're going to, as we look at God's Word, we're going to discover seven characteristics of a life of worship so that we might worship the Lord with our lives. So the first thing I want you to do is, if you haven't already turned in your Bibles to John 4, uh, let's begin here in John chapter 4, and let's look at verses 20 through 24. John chapter 4, verses 20 through 24 and Jesus is having this encounter with a Samaritan woman at a well. Well, and he has just graciously exposed her sin and need for a savior. And then look what he says, uh, or, or this conversation that he has with her, beginning in verse twenty. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people, this is the Samaritan woman, say that in Jerusalem is a place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, "Woman, believe me." An hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Did you notice a word that was repeated over and over in this passage? Worship, ten times. Ten times the word worship is repeated. Uh, And therefore, we can obviously learn a lot about worship just from this passage. Uh, So let's look here. In these words uh, of Jesus, we find our first characteristic of worship. It flows from the heart. Worship flows from the heart. She wants to know what place. Is it Mount Gerizim, the mountain there, or is it in Jerusalem? Jesus says neither. It's not about a place. It's about the heart. Now, where does Jesus in this passage say that it's about the heart? Uh, notice what Jesus, how Jesus characterizes worship in verses 23 and 24 with the phrase, specifically in 24, with spirit, and, and 23, spirit and truth. Uh, for, for now, let's just focus on that first word, spirit. We're going to talk about the truth part of it here in just a few minutes. Uh, but... This word spirit, if you notice in your Bibles, it's not capitalized. Now, a lot of Bibles, it's not capitalized anywhere. But in some of your Bibles, when the word spirit is used, pneuma, it is used, it's capitalized, indicating the Holy Spirit. But here it's not. I think if you look at the context, 
I don't think it's talking about the Holy Spirit. Now, I think the Holy Spirit has something to do with what's going on here about true worship, but I don't think it's talking about, it's talking about our spirits, our, the inward most being of who we are. It's also a synonym with the word heart, not our four pumping chambers, but the innermost being of who we are, this, this spirit part, uh, the, the heart. Worship begins in the heart. He's stressing that worship is not confined to some physical place like Mount Gerizim or, or, or Jerusalem or a building. But it flows from the inside of a person. In, in John 3, when, when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus about uh, how he could be made right with God, he said this, you must be born again. And when you study that uh, passage in context, and in context with, with all the scripture and the things that Nicodemus would have understood, uh, you understand that what, Nic- what Jesus was saying to Nicodemus and, and everyone else is that you need a new heart. You need to be changed from within. All Nicodemus could think about was physical and all the things he had already done to make himself right with God. All the things, I don't have time to go into this, but all the things that he had already done to be born again. There were seven different ways you could be born again as a Jewish man. So the, the term wasn't new, but how Jesus was saying be born again was new. And he was saying you need a new heart. In order to be made right with God, in order to worship him, we all need a new heart. <clears throat> this was, of course, the promise of the new covenant that the Messiah or Jesus would bring and we see that in Ezekiel eleven nineteen, And I will give them one heart and put a new spirit within them. And I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. The heart of stone, which is not alive. And he's going to give it a live heart that will desire and long to worship and love and obey the Lord. Those who have been given this new heart by, by turning from their sin... And trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ as a provision for sin, now have a heart that longs to ascribe worth. And we get the word worship from worthship. We ascribe worth to the things that we, we think are worthy, and that's what it means to worship. And so we have this new heart that wants to ascribe worth to God. Now, when Jesus says that worship is to be in spirit, he is saying there should be a passion and a love for God flowing from the inside out. We should want to express what we think about God from our hearts. Now, it didn't take long for me, and she's not in here right now, but it didn't take long for me to fall in love with Johnnell. And a lot of you all know, you like, hey, I can see that. You know, dummy, that's the, the greatest decision that I ever made outside of trusting in Christ, all right? I married way over my head. Um... And my heart was overflowing with love for her, and I wanted to express my love for her, and I wanted to express just how much she meant to me, and, 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 and all that I said, and all that I did, I wanted to express my love for her. One thing I did one time is, when she was living in Annapolis, I was living in Springfield, Illinois, and I was working on staff at the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, and it's about a three and a half hour drive over to Annapolis, um, uh, on, on her birthday, I got up, and I had a, I had a nine, I had a, a 10 o'clock meeting to be back for. And I had it in the time zones a little bit different, so you're thinking, okay, how did he do this? But I, So I got up at like 3 in the morning, and, and I had a dozen roses and some candy, and I drove all the way to Indianapolis and surprised her. She was student teaching in this inner city school in Indianapolis, and I came in, and she was shocked, and said, I love you, happy birthday, I gotta go. <laughs> Because I had a meeting I had to be back at. And I got back in my car and I drove back to Springfield. What an idiot, right? No, I love her. 
I loved her, and I wouldn't express how much I loved her. It was worth driving seven hours to just go there and be, see her for 30 seconds and tell her that I loved her. And we can all think about people that we love, and, and it just flows from the inside out. You can't help it. It just wants to come out. You love them so much. There's so much passion. And even more so, in a greater degree, it should be that way with our relationship with the Lord. It should, you just can't keep it from coming out. Now, I know a lot of you guys don't like to sing. We're not necessarily talking about singing this morning. And I don't sing well. But, but when we love the Lord, there's something that wants to come out. And it doesn't always sound pretty, but it's, it's from the heart, right? And there's this passion. We want to express our heart of love to God. Yet so often, we make worship about a place. We make it about a building or certain procedures that we have to go through to worship God. But Jesus says it's about the heart a heart that is deeply and passionately in love with Jesus, with the God of all the earth who sent his son. And Jesus stressed this thought to the Pharisees. He says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. If we're going to truly worship the Lord, it must be in spirit. It must flow from the heart of us, from our innermost being. So where is your heart this morning? Is it full of passion and love for the God of the universe? Worship begins on the inside, in the heart. And every other characteristic of worship flows from that. Because if that's not right, nothing else will be right in worship if our hearts aren't right. So my prayers, if you're here this morning and you have trusted in Christ, he's, I want to let you know he's given you a new heart. He's given you the Holy Spirit who lives inside of you, a brand new heart that longs to love the Lord, who longs to worship him, even when you're fishing. You can worship the Lord. Clean up the Cheerios, you can worship the Lord. When we sing, you worship the Lord. But if you're here this morning and you've never been men right with God by trusting in Jesus, who came to give us a new heart, my challenge is for you. To admit your sin, in no way could you achieve God's standard of holiness and righteousness. And turn from trusting in yourself, because that's ultimately what we all trust in if we don't trust in God. Turn from trusting yourself and turn and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ who died for your sins to make you right with God and become a worshiper of God. Well, let's now look at the second characteristic of, of worship this morning, which is found in the next two verses of John chapter 4. Look at those verses, verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Listen to what Jesus said to her. I who speak to you am he. Now, I don't have time to unpack all that. And when I did, when I knew John, it just brings tears to my eyes. I mean, this woman had been waiting her whole life for the Messiah to show up. The Samaritans had been too. And he says, I'm he. I'm the one. I don't want you to miss that. Well, the second characteristic we see here is that worship is focused on Jesus. It's focused on Jesus. Samaritans believed that when the Messiah came, he would lead them back to true worship. They believed that. And Jesus tells the Samaritan woman that I'm here. I'm here to lead you back to true worship. Also remember that the Samaritans only held to the first five books of the Bible. The, what we call the Pentateuch, five, okay? And included in these books are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all right? Included in there is Exodus and Leviticus, which contain all kinds of things about principles for worship. And it gave them specific instructions about how they were to worship God individually and corporately. And this whole system of worship was pointing to one person. 
Everything in there pointed to one person. Think about this with me. It began as the Lord gave Moses instruction for the Passover, which was the last of the plagues that came on the Egyptians when Pharaoh wouldn't let them go. And what God said to, to, to Moses, tell the Israelites that I'm coming and the death angel's coming. And what they need to do is they need to sacrifice a lamb. And they need to take his blood and they need to put it over the doorpost on the lentils of the, on each side of their door, basically. And when the death angel came, it would, here's where we get the word Passover, it would pass over their house. The death angel would pass. And he wanted to learn this principle early on that something innocent had to die so you could go free. And it was that lamb for every family. There was a principle there. And, and, and Jesus uh, is the ultimate fulfillment of that lamb. He's the Passover lamb. When John the Baptist saw him coming to him, look what John says in John one twenty nine: Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It was all pointing to one person. It was pointing to Jesus, the lamb of God. The worship in the Passover was meant to be focused on Jesus, the Messiah. And then in Leviticus, you have these other details concerning worship. And you have this thing called the Day of Atonement. It happened once a year. When the people would, uh, they would take their lamb that they had raised, a little fluffy over here, one years old, and they would bring a little fluffy to the temple. And, and on this particular thing, that the priest would say, here you go. I'm just reading through the Bible again right now. I've been in Leviticus right now. And, 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 you take it, and you, they, they had to slit its throat. Not the priest. They had to slit its throat again, emphasizing something innocent had to die because of their sin. And he takes the blood, and the priest, one day a year, he couldn't, there was, the, the temple had, the, the outer courtyard, it had the holy place, and it had the most holy place, the holy of holies. They go in there one time a year. And on the Ark of the Covenant with this mercy seat, they would sprinkle blood for the forgiveness of sins, or actually to, to, to look toward, ultimately, the forgiveness of sin, because the, bloods of goat, the blood of goats and bulls cannot forgive sin, it says in Hebrew. It covered their sin. And later, the one that that was pointing to, Jesus Christ, came and took away their sin. It all pointed to Jesus, this, this, this act of worship. And we see this in Hebrews seven twenty six and 27. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, speaking of Jesus, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices first for our own sins. So they had to do that first before they took anybody else's sins in there. They had to do sacrifice for themselves because they were sinful too. And not for, the, for their own sins, or for his own sin, and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. The worship in the Day of Atonement was meant to be focused on Jesus. Now, we had this discussion, I think it was maybe Jonathan the other day, or something like that, we were talking about the, the age of religions. I think we were talking about uh, Islam a little bit. And, 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 but you know the oldest religion in the world, right? Christianity. I know somebody was going to say Judaism. Uh, it's Christianity. Because in Genesis 3.15, he promises the Christ will come and people will be saved through the Christ. Christianity. The oldest religion in the world. And how about that? He's pointing to himself. Here he comes to fulfill all that's mentioned of him in the scripture. And when Jesus, Jesus makes himself known to Thomas after the resurrection, you know, old doubting Thomas, uh, of course he just expressed whatever, with verbally whatever else he was already thinking. And we get mad at Thomas. He was just the honest one. 
And, he, and, and look what Thomas says when he realizes that Jesus is the Christ, the one to come to save his people from their sins. Thomas answers and said to him, My Lord and my God. Because he realized that all true worship is focused on Jesus. All true worship is focused on Jesus. Where is your focus this morning and every other day? Is it Jesus and his work of rescuing you from sin? It's all too easy for us to lose focus, isn't it, when we worship? Anytime. I, I love track and field. It was actually my favorite sport. And I wasn't as good as, it, as I was in football, but maybe better football player. And, but I love track and field, and I was a sprinter. I know it's hard to believe um, uh, that I was actually a sprinter. But one of the things that I learned early on, if I was going to be successful in sprinting, that I got down in my lane, I'm not going to get in my stance, I might be able to get back up, all right? Get down in my stance, and I put my head down, and that... That come up and that gun goes off and boom. And I was supposed to look right down to the finish line in my lane. I wasn't to look over here. My mom's yelling in the stands, go, Brian, go. Can't look at her. My girlfriend's over here, can't look at her, whatever. I'm just going to be focused. If I'm not focused, I won't run well. And when we're not focused on Jesus alone when it comes to worship, it's hard to worship. So my encouragement to you, my challenge is to be focused on Jesus. Make your worship about Jesus because that's how it's always supposed to be. Well, let's turn our attention to the third characteristic of worship that we're going to look at. It's, it is active service. Worship is active service. In, in, in John, as we mentioned, 20 through 24, the, the word worship is mentioned how many times again? Ten times. Nine of those are verbs. One of them is a noun Verse 23, worshipers, but it's understood that they are doing something. So in reality, it's all really about a verb, this, this verb to worship. You, you, we, this, this verb, this understanding, we've got to do something. Worship is not passive. It's never passive. Now look with me now at, at Romans 12. 1. I'll bring this up here for you. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Notice that last phrase, service of worship. It's actually one word. It's one word. And, and, and it's the word liturgy, where we get the word liturgy, all right, which means that and we think of liturgy as an, a, a, an order of worship, right? That has to do with worship. And, and the word actually, it's one word, it means labor or service. That's what the word means. So worship involves active service with our lives. And, and how are we to perform this service? Well, we see in, in Romans 12, 1, we are to present what? What does it say? Present your what? Our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. Uh, look with me at Romans six thirteen. And Paul writes this, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. And members here is speaking of our body parts. That's what he's talking about. All the, our arms and legs and our mouth and our lungs and all that we are, our physical bodies. We use our physical bodies that contain our passionate hearts for God to worship God. All about us, everything that we do can be an act of worship. Well, what act of service or acts of service do we do as we worship? Well, that brings us to our fourth characteristic of worship. Worship is all-encompassing. All-encompassing. So what do I mean by that? Worship is all-encompassing. Well, let's, let's let the Scripture tell us what that means. First, look at Psalm 113.3. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord 
is to be praised. From the rising to its setting. Our service, our act of worship through service is to take place all day long. All day long is what it means. You're thinking, okay, that's, maybe depending on where you're at, maybe that's 12 to 15 hours of daylight. So after it's setting, we're good to go wherever we want, right? That's not what I was saying. We all know that, right? It's, it's talking about all day long. Uh, our, now look at 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And everything that we do, we're to bring glory to God. We're to worship him. We're to ascribe worth to him. And every, whether we eat or drink, it's just saying, and he's given this, uh, this, this totality of what we do. This idea of not just all the time, but in everything. Well, here's another example, a specific example of what we mean by every area of your life. Look at this. And the Lord God took man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate and keep it. Now, what does that have to do with worshiping? That's back in Genesis 2, when, and he puts him in the garden, and he says, work, brother. All right? And that's what he did. He worked. He cultivated and kept the garden. Now, these two words, every time they're mentioned together, in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, always have something to do with worship. Every time. To cultivate and keep. And what God was saying to Adam and to mankind is you worship me through the way that you work. Let me make this clear. Toil or the curse on work didn't come till after the fall. This is Genesis 2. The fall came in Genesis 3. Work is a good thing. He's been given to, given to us to worship him in work. And guess what? Even though we're after the fall, Jesus redeems that. So we can actually worship the Lord through our work and acts of service. Work is one way that we can worship him as we work unto the Lord. But how about this? How about your marriage? Can you worship the Lord? Can you cultivate and keep your marriage? You bet. That's an act of worship to God. Somebody's getting ready to get married this coming Saturday. Right? It's an opportunity to worship the Lord. Parenting. Now you're thinking, that's an opportunity to pray. Right? (laughs) Well, it is. And that's in the form of worship, right? But we can worship the Lord by the the way that we parent. And our friendships, school, and, and our athletic fields. I wore, I think I told you that we wore these shirts in high school. Some of the guys were involved in fellowship with athletes. said, praise God with your pads. So we can worship him even on athletic fields. Gardening, we can worship the Lord while we garden. We can, we can catch raindrops with our mouths wide open. And, and, and in that simple act, as you see kids doing that, you can worship the Lord. We can even worship the Lord as we brush our teeth. Lord, thank you that I've got all my teeth. Or Lord, thank you for the set of teeth I've still got. Whatever it is, we can worship him as we think about our teeth. Uh, we, I don't know when this started exactly, but it was when our kids were younger, and we still do it some today. But trying to emphasize that we can worship the Lord all the time and in every way. So think about driving my kids to school, and, and I started asking this question, what's your goal today? Now, at first, I, I just said, what's your goal? And they would respond. And, and then, it got, okay, Dad's going to ask, what's our goal to get A again? And so I started getting a little rhythm. And that's hard to believe. So I'd go on the side of the steering wheel. What's your goal today, Joshua? Hey, hey. All right. Is Joshua in here? No. no. Okay, Anna Marie. Hey, hey. What's your goal today, Anna Marie? Hey, hey. And how are you going to do that today, Anna Marie? Hey, hey. 
eat food today. Hey, hey, all right? I'd get specific with them. So every day, and then if I'd forget, all of a sudden somebody in the back of the van, what's your goal today, daddy? Hey, hey. And it's, you know, it sounds silly, but our kids will remember that forever. They will. And that our goal is to glorify God. And then we talk about specific ways in which we could glorify God. And, you know, they never came back to me and said, hey, Dad, I'm going to sing today and glorify God. Not that you can't, but it, I try to get it away from Sunday. That it's all day, every day, and everything that we can worship the Lord. Now, you guys can, that's no copyright on that, okay? You guys can take that and probably make it even better rhythm, all right? But worship is all-encompassing. Fifthly, worship is fueled by passionate truth. All right, in John 4, Jesus tells the woman to worship in what? Spirit and truth. It's exactly right. Because God is not only spirit, but he also is truth. He desires to be worshipped for who he really is, not for something he is not. And that's so important. Look at Romans 12.2, which is after Romans 12.1 we just looked at. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by renewing your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, I don't have time to deal with all that's in this verse. I actually did that before the end of the year. But I want to point out that this verse follows verse 1, where we learned that, learned that worship is characterized by active service. What fuels that active service? What empowers us and gives desire for that active service? Well, a renewed mind. That's what does it. A renewed mind. And it's not just here. This really has to do with the heart. There's a connection here between the things that we know and, and the things that we do. Um, uh, notice the phrase, you prove what the will of God is. Another translation says to be able to test and approve what, what God's will. What, what's God's will. Right? And it has the idea of not only knowing God's will, what to do, and that's important. We've got to know what to do. We've got to know what his will is. But embracing it with, impas- with passion, approving it in your heart. We know it, and, and our heart approves it. Yes, this is right. Uh, John Piper explains this well when he writes, The root of Christian living, or worship, in verse 2, is, profoundly renewed, is a profoundly renewed mind. It doesn't just think clearly, but assesses truly and values accurately and proves strongly and treasures passionately what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Did y'all know I love my wife? Did I mention that to you? And I love her. And, and, I mean, the first day I met her, I loved her. I didn't tell her that right then. Right, but I loved her. You know what? I love her more today than I did when I first met her. I love her more today than I did on our wedding day. You know why? Because I know her more. I've gotten to know more about my bride. And I love her more the more I get to know her. And in a greater way, the more we get to know God, and really know who he is as revealed in his word, We'll love him more. It's a natural thing to do. Because we'll never find anything wrong with God. Ever. We'll always find something greater and greater and greater. And we'll love him more because of that. When a person's heart is fueled by passionate truth, their heart will flow, overflow with passionate worship. Was your heart fueled by passionate truth? Uh, leading to a life of passionate worship? I want to encourage every one of us here this morning to dive deeply into God's word that our mind might be renewed, not for an instruction or guidebook for life or to find a bunch of answers, but just to get to know him, just to know God. Do you know him? Do you really know him? Not, Not know about him, but do you really know him? 
And he promises that we get in his word by the power of the Holy Spirit, he helps us know him and fall more deeply in love with him so we might passionately worship him with our lives. Let's now look at the sixth characteristic of worship. It is pleasing and perfect. Worship is pleasing and perfect. This is also from Romans 12 too. I'll bring that back up here. Look at that last phrase. That which is good and acceptable or pleasing and perfect. As we worship him with our entire lives, we will find it to be good. We will find it to be pleasing to do. Meaning that doing his will, which is to worship, brings joy to our hearts. As we do this, as we worship him with our lives, there's joy that comes with it. I love what Paul says in the midst of this. Romans 7, he's going, I don't do what I want to do, and I, I, I do what I don't want to do. And he's just back and forth, just struggling with, with sin and the, flesh, and the flesh he has to struggle with. But look what he says in Romans 7.22. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. He says, deep down, I joyfully concur. I want to do what's right. And when he does what's right, guess what there is? There's joy. There's joy in it. Because that's what we were created to do. Anytime something functions in the way it's created to do, that's where joy comes. We know that even apart from us. So if you get a, if you get a remote control car and all of a sudden that thing's doing just like you saw on TV, there's some joy that comes to that, isn't it? Because it's functioning just how you want it, imagine it to function, but in a greater way when we do this, when we worship the Lord with our life, there's joy in it. Well, have you found this to be true in your life? When you're worshiping with your life, there's joy in it. There's a peace. There's a satisfaction there that you can't get any place else. Well, let's now look at the seventh characteristic of worship. Worship overcomes temptation. In Matthew 4, um, verses 1 through 11, Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness, many of us by Satan. And many of us um, have seen this where he, he goes to the wilderness for 40 days. And Satan comes and tempts him at the end of that 40 days. Now, understand this. Jesus, 40 days, he's hungry. He's at a weak moment physically. Remember, he is fully God and fully man. So he is weak physically. And here comes Satan at just that point. And how would he respond? And how did he handle Satan's temptations? Because they were real. Jesus was tempted in all ways that we were, it says in Scripture, yet without sin. But he was tempted in all ways. Does he give in to his physical hunger? Notice what he says to Satan after Satan suggests that Jesus fall down and worship him. I love this. Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Listen to this. Jesus overcame temptation by embracing the truth that God alone is to be worshipped. He overcame temptation by embracing the truth that God alone is to be worshipped. When we choose to worship God, guess what happens? We overcome temptation. Worship overcomes temptation. Now here's something, I, many of you have seen this before, some of this will be brand new too. Uh, it's been helpful to me in the area of worship and overcoming temptation, but before we look specifically at this, I, I want to make this statement. Every response to temptation is an act of worship. Let me say that again. Every response to temptation is an act of of worship. Let me explain to you that. Let me uh, uh, kind of show you on this diagram. It starts with what's on the throne of our hearts. Okay, that's where, that's, that's where this all starts. And, and this diagram helps us see that. When faced with temptation, all right, we have a decision or a choice to make. Now you see that little, the little ball, the little, the, the little dot in the middle? It says decision, choice, all right? And this, this, this diagram helps, helps us understand what's on the throne of our heart. All right, so we, we see we, may, we have a choice to make. All right, we can 
make a decision based upon feeling oriented. See that there? Or emotions. So our emotions are going crazy. And man, that looks good. And that'd be great. And I wouldn't have to do this if I did this. And if I'm given this temptation, nobody will know because it's going to, I mean, it feels easy, right? It, it looks like it was easy. And, and it's an easy decision to make as our emotions that start going through our head and our mind. And I just want to let you know that Proverbs thirteen fifteen says, but the way of the treacherous is hard. All right, so it goes from easy, giving our temptation there based upon our feelings or emotions, and it moves to hard. Now look who's glorified. Self is glorified, right? So when we give into temptation, we do it based upon emotions, not on truth. And we go down this road, and, and, and we, we give into temptation, we sin, and then we are glorified. And what does that tell us? Who's on the throne of our heart then? God. Not God, right? It's us. That's an act of worship. When we do that, we're worshiping ourselves. Now you go to the other side, right? You come to this point of, of um, decision, and we see that principle or truth-oriented decisions at the beginning are hard. Because everything in you is saying, don't do that. Do the other thing, right? The emotions are rolling. Whatever it might be. And they want you to do the wrong thing, and it's hard to go against that. But listen to what Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight 28, and 30. He said, Come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Even though it's hard in the beginning, when we make the choice to base our decisions uh, when it comes to temptation on truth, it becomes easy. It becomes easier, Right? Not easy. It becomes easier. His burden is light. When we walk, we just talked about there's joy when we obey the Lord. When we, when we do what he wants us to do in the face of some temptation. Now look who's glorified there. God's glorified. When we base our decisions in the face of temptation on truth, it's hard. But when we do it, it becomes easier and God is glorified. Isn't that good news? Now, I, I, and this diagram has helped me just kind of think through when temptation comes. Okay, I got a choice. I'm either going to worship me or I'm going to worship God because we're all worshipers. We worship something or someone, either ourselves or we worship God. Based on truth, it's hard, but then we worship God. So, do you see how every response to temptation is an act of worship? Every response. Well, remember, as you are faced with temptation, if you choose to worship God, that temptation is overcome. Isn't that good news? It's great news. Well, we've seen these seven characteristics of how I worship. We, we really haven't gotten to corporate worship at all, have we? I mean, that all has something to do with it, I promise. If all of us are worshiping the Lord individually this way, guess what happens when we come together? Boom. And we're going to talk about that next week. Or Kevin's going to teach on that next week. And I encourage you to come back for that. But just, just for all of us to consider this question, is my life a life of worship. It can be. It can be. As you embrace Jesus, God's Son, who died in your place, so you might worship God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word and how clear it is on worship, Lord. And I, I pray that all of us will become better worshipers. We will become more pure worshipers of you. Lord, thank you for making that possible by sending your Son to die in our place so that we might know the joy of worshiping you, the very thing for which you created us for. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.